Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by UPMentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is none other than the one and only Paul Check. Paul was previously on the podcast way back on episode 6, which I have linked in the show notes. On this episode, Paul and I discuss everything and anything to do with child development and how to optimally guide a child to reach their full potential. The areas we cover on this episode were Paul's essentials for optimizing child development. Paul speaks about the lessons he learned from raising his first son, Paul Check Jr., and how this experience will help shape his parenting with his newborn son. Paul also speaks about how to get the balance right between guiding a child's development versus interfering with a child's development. And Paul also touches on so many other areas during this entire interview on optimizing child development. This was an absolutely awesome show, guys, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Myself, we're just on now. So, um, Paul Check, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor once again to have you back on my podcast. Um, I'm almost certain that everybody listening knows who you are, and, and I mean, there's multiple podcasts out there with your background, but maybe just give us a catch-up on uh, what's been new, what, what's been your sort of uh, area of research lately, or what's just what's going on in the life of Paul Czech right now. Uh, well, I've been doing a lot of work to get HLC1, Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1, online so that people all over the world can get that very essential information without having to spend money to travel and stay in hotels and all that. Fiasco, and we've successfully completed that, so it's now available to the world, which you can find by going to chekinstitute.com. Um, and I've been—I've uh, just finished filming my new Czech Four Quadrant Coaching Mastery Training Program. Wow! And I've run the first workshop in England a few months ago. And that was a great success. We had 75 people show up, and uh, 50 of those people offered to give video testimonials, which was amazing. And um, so that program is going to be online as well, and I'm running the second workshop, which might be the last one that I run for quite some time, in San Diego, September the 15th through the 18th. And the four-day workshop is really just focusing on the key parts of that very comprehensive training program, which is designed to help anyone that functions as a leader, coach, teacher, guide, uh, even parent, um, doctor, therapist, in understanding the essential um, aspects of ourselves that we have to be aware of and heal in order to have healthy relationships with ourselves so we can have them with others and the process helps an individual understand by going through their own process and understanding the anatomy of the psyche. An individual learns through their own healing where most people are stuck and are having a hard time with the change process. For example, why they can't lose weight or why they feel trapped in a marriage or trapped in a job and or feel like they're stuck doing things they don't enjoy doing in life, or why relationships won't heal, or why they have addictions to food, exercise, work, drugs, alcohol, you name it. So the program is really designed to identify what are the factors that block our ability to change and create what we want in our life, and how do we use the science of behavioral change and effective coaching to help people make transitions from where they're stuck to where they want to be and how do we help them through common life transitions such as a woman giving birth or wanting to become a mother or her children moving away to college and then feeling the empty nest syndrome or a midlife crisis or uh, going from childhood to teenage years to adulthood to becoming an elderly person in society or the transition to death and what's involved in that for the family and the individual. So it's the most comprehensive program ever put together, seven full days just to film it. And um, 
it even goes beyond check level four. And I designed it so that anyone could enter that program regardless of their profession and enter into the Czech Institute training specifically for that. And someone who completes that training will have adequate skills to be a very, very effective coach in any walk of life from parenting to being a school teacher to doctor to therapist to psychiatrist to psychologist to check practitioner, personal trainer, life coach, mentor, sports coach. It's essential for all aspects. So that's uh, now just in the editing phases, and um, I'm excited about the workshop. I think we're getting close to 100 people signed up in San Diego now. And uh, my next task I will complete will be to build my new athlete self-management program, which will be an online program that teaches athletes what they need to know to effectively monitor and manage themselves so that they can achieve their athletic uh, goals and objectives without unnecessary injury or setback. Mm. Mm. And that will be coupled with our new kettlebell program, which I'm developing with Mike Salimi, who I've coached through uh, a pretty serious injury and rehabbed him and then coached him right up till he uh, won the national championships in the uh, 32 kilo uh, clean and jerk long count competition in Russia, Russian kettlebell training. So that's basically the gist of it, but <laughs> I got a lot going on as usual. So I was just about to say, so basically you're, you're telling me you're, you're not that busy at all. <laughs> so that, that's... No, that, and then having my son, uh, be, yeah. you know, he's only five months old, so my son, Mana, and then, you know, I have two wives. I have my first wife, uh, my, my, my wife, Penny, who's actually my second wife, but I've been with her for 20 years, and then we collectively uh, agreed that we would work together as a family. So Angie, Mana's mother, uh, moved in with us probably two years ago now. And so we've been having a great time together as a family. And um, the ladies get along beautifully and support each other beautifully, which has really been essential for uh, Mana because it's such a tremendous amount of work to have a new child. And... Um, it's just really, uh, it really is something that has pushed me personally to be careful not to let work take such a uh, huge amount of my time that I uh, don't effectively fulfill the role as father and husband and you know partner in life to my my girls and, and my guy. So it's, uh, and then to still, you know, maintain time for my meditation practice and, and Tai Chi and um, giving myself time to express myself artistically, which is very, very important for my psychological health. Mm. So it's really pushed me into um, having to practice my own philosophy and teachings at a deeper level. So essentially, as, as I've heard you say before, this is another teaching opportunity. It's a teaching opportunity, but first and foremost, you know, it's a practice opportunity and awareness exercise. And, you know, my philosophy is you shouldn't teach something that you don't live or you're yeah. just adding to the intellectual confusion of the yeah. planet. And, Absolutely. And becoming another what I call pseudo-expert or paper boat that has lots of ideas but doesn't really understand the implication of those ideas. So it's... Uh, it's been a great practice because it's, um, you know, it's been a, it's encouraged me to just be more clear about what is important to engage in and when do I need to say no to people that I used to say yes to, um, and having a tighter rein on my daily goals and objectives and uh, managing myself so that I can participate in my key relationships and maintain my own <clears throat> sense of core values so that I'm living the way that we've all agreed to live together. And it, and it really does require, uh, you know, you really do have to become uh, quite Zen-like and make um, everything uh, a spiritual practice from washing the dishes to 
keeping uh, your work from getting too out of hand, but yet connecting to your work in a way that's less of a task that's got to be completed like a pain in the backside and more to a way that you can express your love and your creativity so that work ends up being more fulfilling and therefore there's less of a sense of urgency about I got to get away from work and go do something else whether it be Tai Chi or meditation or uh, any other such thing and then inside of that I also you know need to take the time to maintain my physical body through exercise so when you put all that together um, it really becomes a spiritual discipline to overcome the kind of habits you develop when you don't have children in the house and when you do have children in the house and I learned from being a father you know with my first wife who I was married to for 17 years and we had my first son Paul Jr. who's 36 now I learned uh, you know in hindsight that he was the product of uh, parents that were very young uh, he was born when I had just turned 18 and his mother was 17 so we were so driven to create something of ourselves and to survive because neither of us had parents with money so we had to make it on our own and um, you know we did everything that we had to do to keep food on the table and make ends meet and that required a tremendous amount of work and working on the weekends I was you know a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division so very very high stress job and high stress living and um, then when I left the Army and got into my career as the trainer of the Army boxing team I became so uh, engulfed in those responsibilities and then I still had to work with my wife on the weekends doing yard work and landscaping or whatever we could do to make extra money because you just don't make enough money as a soldier to live off post with a family and have a kid and have even a dime left to you know go to a movie or something so being so young and, and trying to create something out of myself that I felt um, satiated with like I was contributing to the world made it extremely hard to give my first son Paul Jr. the time and attention that he needed because the urge to survive was shall we say stronger than the awareness of his need for uh, just unbound play and, and just daddy time mm. and it affected him because uh, you know he he learned to resent responsibility and resent work because in his mind that's what took his dad away yeah. um, so I don't want to make those mistakes with Mana and I'm you know I'll be 55 next month so I've had a lot of chance to explore life and I've worked with countless numbers of kids and parents with problems that emanate from all sorts of these things so that sort of encapsulates where I'm at and what I'm doing yeah I mean it's it's, it's kind of funny you, you got into Paul Jr. because that's one of the questions I have so as I said the offline just for the listeners this podcast is going to center around child development because I'm fascinated with with the environment that the child grows up in because we know from a lot of the literature out there that has a huge influence on 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 that child and in later years in their life you know with regards to the development of their subconscious mind and, and their perception of the world and I mean you speak at length about this you know, in terms of like religious indoctrinations and even just cultural indoctrinations. So, I mean, I obviously want you to get into that. But the, the first question I have, there's eight questions in all. And if we don't get all of them, that's fine. Because I know you, you, you like to be very thorough with your answers. So I, I'd rather get like three really well-answered questions than eight like kind of summaries. So whatever you, you, you want to do, keep going. But the first question okay. I have... Oh, go ahead. I'll try to support you in getting through all eight. I don't mind. I, I can see the clock from here. We're going for an hour, is that correct? Yeah, just an hour, yeah. Because, again, I, I, okay. that's all I booked in. Because, again, I'm so appreciative of your time. Because I knew with, with obviously, Mana, your, your time's even more precious than, than it had been previously. Well, thank you. I do have time pressures. But I'll do my best to answer all your questions. So I'll be conscious of that. Right. No problem. Uh, so the, the first one, Paul, is just, in, in your opinion, what are the, the essentials for optimizing child development? Well, that's a very big question, but the 
the, the I'll try to answer that in steps. The first thing is for the parents to be sure they're ready to be parents mm-hmm. and um, recognizing that it is a huge responsibility and that how one parents their child determines not only the future of the child's life and the way they engage with life and the kinds of challenges they have and the kinds of problem-solving skills they develop and how much creativity they have. But it's also important to remember that the parents are the child's chief programmers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, (laughs) most of us are aware that nobody seems to push our buttons more than our parents. So if you go visit your mother or your father and you spend a couple of days with them on a vacation or something, most people will have a hard time and, and they often say that, you know, my mother or my father just really push my buttons. But what they don't realize is that mom and dad and brothers and sisters can push our buttons very easily because they're the ones that built them. <laughs> they put them in there. Mm. So your mother always knows and your father always knows exactly what to say to wind you up. Because what they don't realize is that most of the things they don't like about their children's behaviors are the things that they don't like about their own behaviors but could never really change or are unconscious of. So the key point here is that if we don't really honor the responsibility of being parents and do the work to make sure that we have our life adequately in balance to make room for a child, then we bring the child into a very, very compressed environment where stress is the dominant theme and making money is more important than playing and, and nourishing and connecting. And um, that often results in kids being babysit by uh, visits to the shopping mall, video game arcades, $20 bills, uh, video games, television, and things that are ultimately uh, just distractions from legitimate nurture and guidance and leave kids uh, very, very susceptible and open open to the unconscious programming of media sources, um, which turns them into people that uh, end up being, one, often very ADD, uh, two, feeling isolated and alone, even when they're surrounded by people, three, being people that don't know how to navigate human relationships, but for example, might have 300 friends on Facebook, but really have never engaged in the responsibility of learning how to manage a relationship, and all friendships or relationships, and they all challenge us, and the deeper we get into friendships or relationships, the more challenged we get, because the more a person feels uh, shall we say, harmonize with us or tune to us or uh, is capable of loving us, the more capable they are of being honest and we're saying or doing things that are upsetting to them. And whether we're right or wrong, the, that process is the process of a relationship and learning that other people see things differently and have different feelings than you do and experience things differently you know in other words five people eating chocolate cake are not having the same experience but we naturally assume that they are because we are having that experience so if if parents aren't ready to really nurture uh, their child and grow them into healthy relationships by exemplifying healthy relationships then it sets the child up for a lot of physical emotional and mental crisis which usually the parents try to medicate through the allopathic or medical approach. And the other thing is that's very, very important is that there's a real, uh, shall we say, problem, especially in the Christian and Jewish culture, um, in which many people, a significant number of young couples that aren't getting along well, but believe because of their vows, their marriage vows based on their religion that they must stay together until death do they part, Mm. that the best thing that they could do to fix their relationship up is have a child. So there you see a very dangerous situation. People that don't have the skill or the willingness to work on their relationship 
and climb above their egos or individual needs to find the harmony of we, what can what is there that we want together that we're willing to sacrifice some of our personal needs for to get harmony in the relationship as an entity in itself. In other words, the relationship becomes a living being in and of itself. And without common goals, dreams, and objectives, then you have two egos fighting against each other for getting what they want. And once the euphoria of, of the honeymoon sex wears off, that's when the work of the relationship comes. But typically people grow further and further apart and more and more short-tempered and caustic and criticismal of each other and then decide that the way to save the relationship is to have a child to create something bigger than the two of them. But then you have two unskilled people that don't know how to navigate a relationship who will now consciously or unconsciously impose those experiences, views, and energies onto the child. So um, if two people don't have the time and the willingness to create space to grow love and nurture and a sense of grace and, and worship towards each other, then bringing a child in that environment is like bringing a child into a battlefield and wondering why the child's crying all the time when there's bombs going off all around the house. Great stuff. Um, I'm just you trying can't to create more. Sorry, you can't create more stability for a child than you can create in your your relationship with your partner. Absolutely. And a child is is completely, utterly, at the mercy of its parents for its safety, its security, its sense of love, its sense of connection. And it might be interesting to note at this point that in research on Infant attachment and detachment disorders where kids are either overly attached or detached or ambivalently attached, which means they don't want to be with their mothers or fathers, which is sad but very common. Uh, for example, a mother or father picks the child and screams and fights and doesn't want to be held by the parent. When they looked into uh, you know, very large surveys of parents with these challenges, a very interesting common denominator emerged. The number one causative factor of infant attachment or detachment disorders was parents that do not have a clear sense of direction in their life. Hmm. And that goes right back to my one, two, three, four philosophy. What is the one love that you're living for as a couple? What is your overarching dream? your overarching sense of value and what creates meaning in your life without that sense of dream, meaning and value. The child is born into a situation which would be very much like you being in the passenger seat in a car with somebody else driving and the two people in the front fighting with each other and the car is swerving all over the road and nobody's really quite sure where they're going or if they have enough gas or money to get there. So if you can imagine how that would make you feel, imagine being a child who's utterly dependent upon and has deep love for both parents and feeling that car swerving all over, which would represent the relationship and seeing mom and dad bouncing from a state of connection to combat, to connection to combat. It creates a lot of chaos and confusion in a child. When you look at Joseph Chilton Pierce's research and many others, the child is on absolutely full download mode for the first seven years, and then it peters down for the next five years. But the child is actually like a, a multidimensional recording system that records every single thing in the environment, from sounds to smells to postures to gestures to words to behaviors to fears, to loves, and sadly what most people are trying to take their children to doctors and therapists for or to medicate is really a mirror of what they have not addressed in themselves. Yeah. And it makes me really sad when the kids get blamed or diagnosed because once you diagnose somebody with something, the risk is that they might believe it. 
In other words, if you tell a kid you've got ADD, then the child now believes they have a dysfunction called attention deficit disorder. Mm. But behind that is really, I'm scared to death because nobody's at the wheel and the car is swerving all over the road. <laughs> so the, like, all that all that information is is like for anyone that's listening to you for the first time, that's probably after blowing their mind. But I, I've been such a student of your work and the, the work of Joseph Shilton Pierce and Luther Burbank, Bruce Lipton and these others. The next the next sort of question on that then is like, how how can we bring that to a conscious level with parents? So like the, 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 even even parents who plan to have a baby, they're still for the, for the vast majority of the part completely unaware of these detrimental subconscious beliefs or opinions that they will um, bestow upon or endow upon their children, even in a non-sinister way, which is probably what most parents do. They actually do it in a completely oblivious or non-sinister way in terms of putting these detrimental sort of opinions and belief systems and creating this detrimental environment. So how can we bring it more to a conscious level for parents? Well, that's what my check four quadrant mastery coaching program is about, which is very, very deep, but I'll give you some practical stuff that anybody can use. Um, first of all, as you said, a lot of these behaviors are unconscious mm. and by definition, something that's unconscious means you're unaware of it. Yeah. Um, we all have a shadow, which means the parts of ourselves that we ourselves don't like that we cannot see. But paradoxically, when others behave that way, we quickly recognize that they're doing things that we don't like, but don't realize that we do the same things. Mm. So one of the first ways to recognize where you're acting out your unconscious or where your shadow is, is pay close attention to anything that triggers you in relationship with your partner or even your children. So, for example, just to use a simple thing, if somebody, um, if one of the partners tends to leave their underwear on the floor and kind of leave the house a little messy and it really triggers you, Instead of attacking your partner and saying, you know, going off on a, a rant, a rant or a rave on why do you keep doing that or you know why didn't you take the garbage out? Why are you such a pig? Pay close attention to the fact that when you've healed any such event in your own life, you do not get triggered. You simply become aware, and instead of being reactive. You inquire as to, you might say, instead of, God damn it, why do you keep leaving shit laying all over the house, becomes, honey, I'm guessing you're really busy because I can see that you haven't had time to pick up your dirty clothes in the last three days. Is there something that you need help with or is there uh, any way that um, we could look at your schedule to see if there's a way we can create more time for you to participate in uh, the house chores that we agreed upon to share together. Mm. Um, so there, the, the general point I'm making is anytime somebody can trigger you into an emotional ready, fire, aim behavior where oftentimes you walk away or the next day or later that night go, geez, I wish I wouldn't have done that mm. or said that then you're being given the gift of bringing something up out of the unconscious into the conscious where it can be recognized. Um, that's one of the, the, the greatest gifts there is. Um, the other uh, things that we could look at is look carefully at your relationship with your parents. Mm. Whatever the things are about your mother and your father that bother you the most are usually the things that we're most likely to project in our relationships unconsciously. So an exercise that I teach, uh, that I do with my patients or clients uh, that are having these kinds of problems, I ask them to write down four words that exemplify the positive qualities of your relationship with your mother and four that exemplify the negative experiences about your relationship with your mother and do the same with your father 
And then after that's done, I have them write down the four most common reasons people have either ended personal relationships with them, intimate relationships with them, or they've been let go from jobs. And you'd be shocked at the number of times the words that are written down as why they've had people tell them they're leaving the relationship or why they've been fired are exactly the words that exemplify the four words that they don't like about their mother or their father. Hmm. In other words, the things that they don't like about their mom and dad become the negative qualities that they're projecting unconsciously in their own behaviors, but can very easily spot them in other people and criticize them without realizing it's the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. So by looking carefully at what triggers you the most about your parents who are your chief programmers and becoming aware of that, you can then bring it up into conscious awareness and instead of ready, fire, aim, you can, you know, think before you act, count to 10 before you act. Hmm. Um, so, so that's a, a real major thing. If people just did that alone, their whole lives would change. I mean, it would be a radical shift right there. Um, so those are some of the important things. Um, I think what's really important, though, is that we define what consciousness is. Most people really don't know what it is. It's kind of a loosely traded word like God yeah. uh, or like love. You know, love has as many flavors as uh, you can possibly imagine. People say, I love you, then punch each other in the face or cheat on each other or lie to each other. So um, consciousness is quite elusive in that very few people have studied enough to look into the people that are conscious enough to effectively define what consciousness is. It's kind of like Alan Watts who yells because the analogy of trying to trying to tip the finger with the same like trying to touch the tip of the finger with the same finger it's almost a it's a fruitless effort almost. Yes, yeah, you know it's like an eye that cannot see itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the first thing that I would point out is that um, Carl Jung, who was a a very very deep uh, shall we say, uh, explorer of consciousness, really, mm-hmm. and pioneered a huge amount of knowledge in the area of the unconscious and the conscious, identified that in a human being, conscious has four functions. It expresses itself through four functions, which are thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition. Mm-hmm. And thinking and feeling are functional uh, counterparts like heads and tails of a coin and sensation and intuition are functional counterparts. So you're, 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 you're in a culture, we're in a culture that's very, very thinking dominant, yeah. very, very thinking dominant. And we're also in a culture that um, is so under the influence of scientific materialism and so into the worship of authority figures and doctors and, and, priests and, you know, people that uh, on paper are authoritative because of our uh, worship of academic uh, education, that we often uh, don't realize that um, the things that are being said or that are being uh, told to us are not things that have ever really been mastered by the people that are proclaiming them. Therefore, we have uh, a lot of intellectual ideas that have not been run through the filter of experience and therefore are not the product of wisdom. Um, In other words, we're a highly intellectual culture. But Carl Jung beautifully stated that intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. So what you find is people writing about, uh, you know, things like how to live well or how to parent children or how to do almost anything have very little authentic experience. And people that are writing about spiritual development usually 
do very little spiritual development, but just like to read spiritual books and then just trade other people's sayings and twist them a little bit to make them their own. Mm. So, you know, to, to really understand consciousness, one has to become Zen-like and fully engaged, not only in the activities of daily life, but in being aware of what's going on. And to be aware, you have to have the ability not only to think, but to feel, feeling in the Jung system does not mean uh, feeling something uh, sharp touching your skin or something hot. That is sensation. Feeling is the feelings that we have inside of ourselves relating to our values. So, for example, if somebody believes that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Savior and that any other religion is wrong, then if somebody comes up to them maybe as a friend or an acquaintance and says, oh, you wouldn't believe the amazing stuff I read in this Buddhist book, they would immediately have a, a likelihood of a negative emotional reaction, disdain or disinterest or just shut down and say, oh, I'm not interested in that. That's, you know, that that is not um, true religion or spiritual teaching, that's just being misguided because Jesus is the only Savior. So there you see that, as an example, feeling relates to our values, and a lot of times people don't even know their values, they just react to an unconscious value, which again would be the values programmed into them by their parents, their uh, various family members, their icons or heroes, and their culture. Mm. So if one's not conscious of their values, then they're going to act unconsciously. So again, the four doctors gives you a category of values. What is it that is happy making for me? What is it that I'm willing to do to create happiness for myself? How much movement of my body do I need to be healthy and live my dream? What's too little? What's too much? What quality of food do I need to eat? How frequently should I be eating and how much should I be eating in order to feed my body and keep it healthy, which is the, fab, you know, the foundation of your emotions in your mind? And how much rest do I need? And there's one that very few people in our culture even pay any attention to, particularly because we've got so many so-called experts telling us things like you need to work 80 hours a week or 60 to 80 hours a week to be successful. You've got people like Tony Robbins saying, oh, you can get by with less and less sleep and encouraging sleep deprivation, all of which in practice leads to complete and utter disaster. Mm. Um, so having values uh, and, and bringing up into consciousness helps you know when to say yes and when to say no in relationships. And, you know, I often say your yes has no value until you learn to say no. So your feeling function either functions unconsciously because you're not clear on your values and therefore you're not clear when to say yes or no and you get yourself into all sorts of trouble such as chronically overcommitting yourself uh, and you can end up with the overloving mother syndrome and that's where women often get breast cancer from giving themselves away uh, you know in the name of Jesus or whatever it might be but not realizing that giving yourself away and simultaneously killing yourself does you know a negative and a positive equals zero uh, so then you have pathology coming out of that. Sensation is a big problem in our culture because, uh, you know, in their own various forms, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity have all denied the body. They're, you know, they're all ascending religions, which means that they're, you know, your sexual urges to be denied. Your clothing is, has got to be a certain way. You can't dress with too much freedom. You, you, uh, you know, masturbation is a sin. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much anything that is a natural uh, instinct that we want to fulfill, from art to music to dance to dress to food. Many religions have food restrictions, you know, which most of them have no real scientific or even intelligent basis. They're just more like, um, shall we say, um, idiosyncrasies. Uh, there are some exceptions, such as Jewish restriction of pork, 
I won't get into the you know the meta the you know the biochemistry of that, but I'm saying that in general, most religious restrictions are really just like any other restriction. They just impose control on people. Yeah. And wherever you try to control people and put them against their natural urges, you pit them against themselves, which creates guilt, shame, pain, blame, oppression, and that all often leads to addictions to deal with the pain of not being able to love yourself because you're constantly sitting. So the point that I'm making is, is that we have fallen into the trap of antiquated religious ideas that are heavily misinterpreted at the expense of losing our ability to love, appreciate, accept, and participate with ourselves as the most important person there is in the world, because without you, nothing else matters. There is no God without you. There is no love without you. There's no joy without you. There's no growth without you. Um, so the result is that we've gotten so deep into denial and repression, into addiction, that we no longer can feel ourselves. People don't know when to stop eating because they don't know the difference between hunger and needing to breathe or move their body. They have armored themselves because they're ashamed of their sexual urges. So their, their uh, shall we say, base sexual energies, which are also our creative energies, are suppressed or denied, or they hold on to it so long they become, shall we say, almost fanatical about expressing it, and then they go into another surge of huge denial. So it's, you know, in the box, out of the box with great intensity. So you, you uh, and then you have a culture that has legalized the most dangerous drugs in the world, sugar, alcohol and commercially traded tobacco, all of which are highly addictive and highly destructive to a person's health. Yet, if you study the history of religion, the use of psychedelic plant-based medicines were extremely common and necessary because they decreased the function of the ego and open us up to the, shall we say, the subtle energies of nature and the cooperative, uh, shall we say, uh, way that nature operates as opposed to survival of the fittest, kill or be killed, nature is really much more um, a system of harmony and balance in which everything is giving from and taking from that which it needs to survive, but it all, you know, you don't see bears starting forest fires. You don't see um, uh, wolves committing genocide and killing off a bunch of other dogs just because they don't like their religion. So, the result is that we've armored ourselves in so much fear, so much shame, so much guilt, and so much pain that we are no longer in touch with our bodies, which is evidenced by all the obesity and, and, and eating disorders and drug addictions. And uh, we've got the highest levels of childhood suicide and teenage suicide in history. We've got the highest levels of adult suicide in history. We've got the highest levels of medical and recreational drug use in history, most of which is dangerous because the legal drugs are, are not really healing drugs. They're, they're not designed to heal you. They're designed to addict you. Alcohol is one of the most destructive drugs ever, uh, far, far more destructive than uh, almost any of the uh, plant-based uh, recreational or spiritual drugs that you could use from nature. So we've got numb people walking around who have got so much pain and fear buried in them all based on what God wants, which is another great big booby trap. God doesn't want anything. God has everything. Uh, so to think that God wants something means that you've created an idea that God is a human being, but God is not a human being. God is all that is. Mm -hmm. And God is unconditional love. So the only way that God can experience God is through love. And what we're describing here is not love. It's, it's a uh, confusion. So my point is so far that thinking is way over dominant. Feeling is way underappreciated because most people aren't aware of their values. Sensation is shut down because we're dealing with all these religious and social ideas and corporatizing of our own health and well-being by folks fo fo forcing us into situations where we're told that organic food isn't uh, any better than commercial food, that we can never feed the people on the world organically, all of which is just absolute crap. 
then we're told that you know genetically modified foods will save the world. Then we've got corporatization of foods, destruction of foods. And when you consider that the average breakfast cereal eaten by children worldwide is 47 to 56% sugar, which is a class one drug that's highly addictive and dangerous, and most parents are completely oblivious to the fact that their children are on one of the most dangerous drugs in the world and feed it to them all day and can't figure out why their nose is always running, they're always sick. And then you have a medical system. When I when Mono was born, they wanted to give him 72 vaccinations within the first four months. And I had to fight like hell in the hospital to not vaccinate him. And they would wake Angie up all through the night, even at three o'clock in the morning, hoping that I'd be asleep to try to sell her on these vaccinations to try to get her to do them. And it got to the point where I made it very clear to them that they didn't know what the hell they were talking about, cited lots of research for them. And they ended up calling a social worker in and, and forced me to have a private meeting with her because they felt that was abuse, being abusive to my wife and my child by not letting her vaccinate him or him get vaccinated. But they wouldn't pay attention to the fact that her and I share the same values. And she's actually an instructor of my methodology and is, is a licensed nutritionist and a shaman. So um, intuition requires stillness. Intuition is a passive process. It is not an active process. Thinking is an active process. Sensation is an active process. You have, something has to happen for you to sense something. But for intuition to work, you have to be able to have a relationship with stillness, the gap between thoughts. But when our heads are so full of confusion and fear, there is no gap between the thoughts. It's just fear after fear. And that's been shown in research. Deepak Chopra cited that current research shows the average person thinks 68,000 thoughts a day, of which 90% are negatively oriented. So you take... 16 hours of waking day, divide that by 68,000 thoughts and ask me, where are you going to fit a moment of stillness with which intuition can speak to you and guide you? And the best way to hear your intuition is to hear it from your heart. But we're so trapped in our heads, our hearts are now reduced to pumps and nothing else. But it's like Shields and Pierce's uh, intellect of the mind versus the intelligence of the heart. Exactly. And, um, so the point that I've just made is that you cannot be fully conscious until you have become aware that you need to effectively use thinking, feeling, sensation, and intuition, none of which can be used unless you engage with them, none of which can be effective if you're torturing yourself, denying yourself, not loving yourself, not caring for yourself, not feeding for your, you're feeding yourself, resting yourself exercising your body correctly and are in a state of pathology yourself. Uh, you know, it's not a good idea for blind people to leave blind people. And when parents are blind to what consciousness is and how it functions, then, then how could they be a seeing eye dog for a child? They can't. They can only impose that upon their child unconsciously. So that gives you, shall we say, the four functions of consciousness through which we experience consciousness. Now, to give you two definitions of what consciousness is, the philosopher John Dewey defined consciousness as awareness of awareness. So, for example, when I meet with parents or uh, people that are having body-mind problems, which is what I do every day, I ask very commonly, are you, get, are you eating in a way that is dream affirmative? In other words, are you, are you eating good food or do you, are you aware that you're eating things you shouldn't be eating? And every one of them says, yes, I know I should be eating better or I know I shouldn't skip meals. Are you exercising too much or too little? Every single one of them will tell me the answer to that. They already know. Are you getting enough sleep? Every one of them knows the answer. It's almost always no. Are you doing things that you know are happy making for you on a regular enough basis to create happiness in your life. No, and then I get a long excuse list of why they're not. So here's the key point. Consciousness is awareness of awareness. What I just described to you is people that are aware 
but not aware that they need to be aware of what they're aware of and do something about it. Mm. So people limp through their whole life always knowing what's wrong with them, yet running around to doctors and therapists to try to fix the problem, which means they're not engaging in it, which means they're not becoming more conscious, which means they're not growing spiritually, which often means they're sitting in churches and temples praying for God to come take those problems away without actually participating and thinking that God's some kind of a psychologist or a mechanic, which is why I often say to people, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb must want to change. So an example of awareness and then awareness of awareness is if someone plays golf, for example, they may not be very good. They may, you know, shoot 85 or 90 for a round of golf. But then with practice, they might get better. But after a while, they all of a sudden reach the point where one day they go to swing the club at the ball. And before the club could make it from the back swing to impact, they already knew it was going to be a lousy shot. So they became aware that they were aware. Now, some of them go off and get teaching a teaching pro to capitalize on the awareness that they're aware there's something wrong and they can't fix it by changing their stance, changing their grip or doing some stretches or exercises. Then they have to go to a teaching pro and the teaching pro helps enhance their awareness of the fact that they're aware there's something wrong, but brings it into a focal point, whatever it might be. Now, when they go to set up on the ball, they have awareness of awareness. So they're actually conscious. The person that knows something's wrong, but just keeps beating balls year in and year out while betting money isn't conscious. They're just aware that they're not very good. The person who's aware that there's a problem and does something about it is now conscious and they take that opportunity to grow and to become more tapped in, more intelligent. Next, Edward Edinger, uh, a famous union analyst and psychiatrist, gave a very profound definition of consciousness. He says, consciousness is a psychic substance created not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. Consciousness is a psychic substance created not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. That's a very, very critical distinction because we tend to run from and try to medicate everything we don't like in our lives. But it is the play of energies and consciousness moving from what we would say we like or enjoy to things that we dislike and don't enjoy or from being supported by people and being grateful for their positive comments, but feeling irritated, agitated, or right pissed off at their negative comments. So we want to cut out all the negative and we want to, you know, the religious people want to blame that on the devil, the Western religions, and they want to create the illusion that everything that isn't good in their own viewpoint is of the devil, and somehow the devil is distinctly separate from God, which creates a paradox, because that means there's two gods, a good God and an evil God. When in fact, the Bible itself says, if you read Isaiah 45.7 in the King James Version of the Bible, it says, I create light and dark. I create good and evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Mm -hmm. So the key point is that those two polarities have to exist or there cannot be mind. You cannot have a, a, a thought without a polarity. You cannot have movement without polarity. Just like an electric motor will not move if you don't have a positive and negative polarity in the magnetic field, thought cannot move if we only have good without evil or uh, love without not love or tall without short or fast without slow or hot without cold. So, you know, Carl Jung was once asked, 
how do you know when God is in your life? And he said, when things are going really shitty. <laughs> and what he meant by that, knowing what consciousness was, he said, that's when I'm being given the opportunity to become most conscious of what I'm creating or what I'm participating in or what's being created around me so that I can actually make a decision to either be a healing force or a balancing force or protect myself or become more aware at a deeper level. So the point that I'm making that goes right back to my beginning point when you asked about how can parents prepare themselves is be aware that consciousness is most easily accessible, not when we're driving down the road singing our favorite song or getting a pay raise or the things that we think are great, but when the challenges are present in our lives, and instead of drugging them or denying them or blaming on somebody else, we can be more conscious by saying, ah, this is the third time I've been fired for this, or this is the fifth time somebody's told me in a relationship that I talk too much and don't listen, hmm. dot, dot, dot. So when a person's an adult, they begin to be honest about the patterns emerging, and then they can engage through awareness, like the golfer, and either start studying self-help books, audio programs, television shows, uh, going to counseling with a therapist, or doing something proactive to really engage, and that's really what spirituality is. Spirituality, you know, my definition of spirituality is taking responsibility for what you create moment to moment. I think anything else is just new age fluff. So uh, that is my summary of a few things that we can do as potential parents or as existing parents in order to enhance our experience of our relationship with our partner um, and our relationship with our child or children and enhance their likelihood for having the skills and the awareness is necessary to navigate life without having to relive mom and dad's painful myth. <laughs> That's uh yeah, I mean, you, you covered a lot of the other questions I was going to ask in, in, in everything you said there. I mean, uh, I love that definition of spirituality because that's the one I always use. Ever since my, my first interview with you, like, which was like almost five years ago, you, you, you gave me that definition of spirituality. And I always say that to everyone that being a spiritual person is taking responsibility for what you create moment to moment, which I always, I always love that saying. And I love you talking about the oppositions. That always reminds me of Adam Watts. Watts always talking about, you know, you can't have good without bad. You can't have day without night. You can't have ups without downs. And trying to have everything good in the world with no necessarily quote-unquote bad. He's like, again, it's like trying to trying to tip the finger with the same finger as you said earlier on, trying to look the eye, trying to see itself through itself. It's it's an insolvable uh, insolvable problem. It's not, it's not meant to be solved. And the essence is to accept that, to become Zen with it, as you, as you were saying earlier on. Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing is, is that um, the entire universe is built on the principle of polarity. Yeah. And the difference is, is the uneducated or unwise think that these forces are opposites, joy and unhappiness. Mm. But, for example, if you look at the word bliss, it has its roots in a word that means pain. Mm -hmm. One cannot authentically cultivate bliss in their life until they've had enough pain to realize what they're doing to themselves, what they're doing to others, and what they really want. And the uh, the reality of it is, and, and you know, Lao Tzu was is attributed to the um, identification of Taoism and the Tai Chi symbol. Lao Tzu made it very clear in his teaching that it's these are not opposites, they are complementary opposites. Mm -hmm. Fast supports slow, day supports night, right, yeah. life. I mean night, light life supports death, yeah. death supports life. So learning to engage in these things is as important as understanding that on a football field there are going to be people that get hurt now and then. Mm -hmm. There are gonna get someone's gonna get the ball in the nose and bleed. But that doesn't mean that those things are bad. That's just the nature of how things move in a field of action, whether it be a soccer field or an American football field or a rugby field. 
So to go down onto a rugby field and wonder why you're not getting a massage and having roses handed to you is, is as bad as going into life and thinking that anything that's not good based on your definition is bad or of the devil or somebody else's fault is to be so infantile in one's thinking that to take on the role of parenting at that level means that you're now just getting lost with kids as opposed to getting lost by yourself. And that's the one thing that scares the hell out of children is lost parents. And they can feel it. They can feel parents' insecurities. Parents often try to hide things from them and things like that, but they forget kids don't have a bunch of ego and baggage in the way. And they can see energy fields and they can feel the truth of you and smell the truth of you better than most adults ever could. Mm -hmm. So denying the truth to yourself and playing games with your kids only ultimately teaches kids to stop being the divine, beautiful, loving beings that they are so they can fit into a sick culture. But being a conscious parent means to create consciousness in yourself to pass it on to your child. And every time we do that, we've made the world a better place for sure. And I think that if we can just stick to that, the kids that we produce by being conscious parents will be the conscious people of the future that will help us heal the unconsciousness of past ignorance and religious silliness. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, we're on the hour here and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I, I might uh, try and, and set up another podcast with you in, in the not too distant future because there's, 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 there's one or two or there's about four other deep questions I'd love to get you, your thoughts on. Um, and I definitely would like to get you back on our time. Um, like, and I don't, I don't want you to get into it now because obviously of your time. But one was about the balance of of uh, guiding the child versus interfering with the child. And I know Osho. One of my favorite things from Osho is a, a person asking what is the right way to to help a, a child grow without interfering with its natural potential. And I loved his answer. His answer was everything of helping a child is wrong. The idea of helping a child is not right. Child needs your love, not your help. The child needs nourishment, support, but not your help. And I love that. And I, I would imagine that you would probably agree because I know you love Osho. You, you've studied Osho in depth, so I'd imagine that would be an area you'd like to speak about in the future. Yeah, there's a lot that can be said about that, and that's you know the problem with people like Osho is they speak in such deep and broad terms that mm. it's open to very wide misinterpretation. Yeah. You know, for example, Osho also says the beauty of, of love is that it never works. But I could only count the number of people on one hand that I've ever heard him say that that actually understood what he meant. But the number of people that got really pissed off when he said that is uncountable. Yeah. So, you know, to sit at the feet of a wise man without having the ability to directly ask that wise man questions and then fall into your own interpretation is very, very dangerous. Yeah. So I think that when we look into statements like that we have to be very cautious of what's really being said because there's a very fine line between helping a child and not helping the child but for example if a child is uh, trying to learn how to ride a motorcycle and you don't help it by reminding it to wear a helmet then you're not helping the child you're setting the child up for uh, you know potentially the end of its life so there's certain ways that we have to consciously be aware of what effective help is and what ineffective help is. Yeah. What Osho is really referring to there is do not control the child. Let the child create, let the child play without judgment, without the need to conform yeah. to standards or grades or to try to be better than somebody else. Yeah. He's saying, give the child the love and nurture to authentically be themselves. Yeah. But he's not saying not to help it by feeding it well or helping it learn to tie shoes or use a computer or things like that. Well, that, that, that was completely my interpretation of it too. But I suppose that, as Ralph Paul Emerson has said, to be great is to be misunderstood. So and he, he said that in, in self-reliance. But I, that's, that, that was my interpretation of what Osho meant too. But I can see what you mean by people misinterpreting that. Paul, I'll, yeah. I'll let you go because, again, um, uh, uh, Vigil will kill me if, she, if, she, if I have you on any longer. But I'd love to get you back on. And I just want to say your, your YouTube videos are absolutely great. If if possible in the future, I would love if you could do YouTube on pro-life versus pro-choice. I would love to see that. 
you mean, um, are you talking about whether or not you get an abortion? Yeah, I, I would. I, I, that's one conversation I, I would love to, just just to hear your opinion on it. But again, I don't have to get into it now. I know it's a big thing to leave the show on, but I, I'd love to see you do a, a YouTube series on that, the way you've done on like all your other deep topics like erectile dysfunction and all the all the yeah, great things. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that, and, and uh, I'm sure I'll upset far more people than I bring into a state of aha, I get it. Yeah. But I think it is a deep issue that's worth looking at, and I have a lot to say on that, yeah, uh, both as a teacher, a therapist, and a shaman, and a mystic who spent his life developing his relationship with this thing we call God, yeah. which isn't an entity that we can really identify, but does speak through the heart. So if you just write an email to Vidya uh, asking her to remind me about that, I'll see what I can do in the next couple of months for you. That'd be unbelievable. I'd, 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 me and and everybody would appreciate that because again, I, like yourself, uh, like like most topics we spoke about, like I like think I deeply think about these things, and it's it's something I've always wanted to get your your thoughts on because I know that you'd be a person who's deeply deeply thought about these things. So listen, Paul, well, I've confronted it in many cases, and I've confronted it in my own life wow. uh, more than once. So I've been face to face with the issue more than once. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, Paul. Right, I better run because I gotta go to the toilet so bad I'm gonna bounce. <laughs> I, I gotta go. Okay, Paul. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I'll send this on when it's out. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah, great. Take care. Thanks for a uh, great interview. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>